welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on October 17th, Lord's Day service. words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him. But he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning you would use the preaching of your word to give us faithful and devoted regard for the Lord Jesus, your incarnate Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a story about who has authority, to what are you bound, and for what do you beg? Who has authority, to what are you bound, And for what do you beg? In this section of Mark, really starting from Mark chapter 4, verse 35, going through chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus continues to demonstrate His authority. He's demonstrating His authority over the laws of nature. He's demonstrating His authority over sickness. And in this story, He's demonstrating His authority over the demonic world. In this story, the power of God's kingdom is shown by driving out demons from a man. Now, the man is not Jewish. 
he lived in a Gentile area. We're told in verse 1 that they came to the other side of the sea. This is the Gentile side of the sea, the northeast side of the sea. This man is not someone sitting quietly in a synagogue stirred by Jesus' preaching. This man is in a wild state. No person can restrain him. This man is in agony. He is torturing himself. He is under the influence of thousands of demons. This is the significance of the name Legion. The Legion was the basic unit of the Roman army. It had between three and 6,000 soldiers. So a Legion are professional infantry soldiers. The Roman legions were the most feared soldiers in the world at the time. So when Jesus asks his name in verse 9, his answer is, my name is Legion. His answer is, my name is 101st Airborne. My name is Army Rangers. In other words, Satan has accumulated an elite demonic force to possess this man and face off with Jesus. According to the description, this man is not what we would call lovable. This man is not charming. He is not pleasant. He is not well-connected. Yet, Jesus loves and pities him and casts the demons out. The unclean spirits come out of the man and enter a herd of pigs that run into the sea and drown, destroying the pigs. Yet the true miracle is not what happens to the pigs, but what happens to the man who is completely changed. This display of God's power brings fear to the unbelieving, we're told in verse 15. And so instead of begging Jesus to stay, the local people beg Jesus to leave. And then the healed man begs to go with Jesus, but Jesus does not allow him. And so this is a story about who has authority, to what are you bound, and for what do you beg. And so first, let's consider who has authority. Verses 3 through 5 tell us that this man is wild and can't be bound. And then the man sees Jesus. So picking up now in verse 6, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirits. So notice in verse 7 that the demons address Jesus by crying out with a loud voice. In other words, they shout at Jesus and they say, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And while this does suggest that the demons recognized Jesus' deity, this is not a gesture of respect. This is not a gesture of worship. This is the demons' attempt to control Jesus. You might have noticed throughout the book of Mark, we saw it in Mark 1, for example, the demons address Jesus directly, and they address him by name. Why do they do this? Well, in the ancient world, it was thought that to declare the name of a person or a spirit was to gain power over them. And so the demons are attempting one of those how to win friends and influence manipulation tricks. They call him by his name in order to gain power over him. Notice also that they fall down before Jesus. 
They fall before Jesus in verse 6. This again is not out of reverence for Jesus. They don't fall before Jesus to worship Him. They fall before Jesus much like the Roman guards knelt in mockery of Jesus on the cross. So, so what are the demons doing with all of this? Well, they are struggling for control. They are trying to control Jesus. These demons know who Jesus is, and yet they still try to control Him. Think about that. They know who Jesus is. They know He's the Son of God, and yet they still try to control Him. Going back to the garden, the ancient struggle has always been about control. In other words, it's been about authority. Of course, we are now living in the modern version of the ancient struggle. In our modern excursion into the struggle, the self is unhitched from the sovereign God. The self is unhitched from the sovereign God. And this proceeds under the name progress. It is the conceit of modern progress that the God of the Bible is nothing more than a dead weight. Innovation is good so long as it renders God unnecessary. So if you can do science in a way that makes God unnecessary, that's progress. If you can do history in a way that renders God unnecessary, that's progress. If you can raise your children in a way that renders God unnecessary, that's progress. If you can carry out your marriage in a way that renders God unnecessary, that's progress. Innovation is good so long as it renders God unnecessary. And then the more God is unnecessary, the better life is. The more God is unnecessary, the richer life is. Rather ironically, the same people who march under the banner of progress are concurrently making the accurate observation that people everywhere are now characterized by emptiness, superficiality, and self-destruction. In other words, people under the banner of progress seem to have accepted the farce that freedom from God is good, that is progress is good, but it comes at a cost. And that cost is that we are now less human, less soulful, and less profound. But it's worth it. It's worth it because at least we don't need the dead weight of God and his rules anymore. And so we need to remember that we don't control the living God, even though the instinct of progress is to suppose that we can. We do not control the living God, even though the instinct of the demons was to suppose that they could. Christians know this isn't progress, and therefore we reject progress. And what we see in this passage is it's not progress, it's demonic. And so, this is a story about who has authority. To what are you bound and for what do you beg? So next, let's consider, to what are you bound? Look with me at verse 3. Describing the demon-possessed man, it says, He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. 
So this man is bound. In other words, because he is bound, he can't be bound. Because he is bound, he can't be bound. To what is he bound? Well, this man is demon-possessed. This man is bound to demons. This wretched man is is beyond all ordinary help. We read that his friends and family try to help him through physical restraint. It didn't work. And so we're told in verse 5, night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So the one who is chained can't be chained. The one who is chained to demons can't be chained. The one who is bound was beyond all ordinary help. His is a thoroughly vulgar life. There is nothing beautiful about this life. This is not good living. This man, bound as he is, has the most reprehensible existence. I mean, we're told in verse 3 and verse 5, he lives in a graveyard. And then notice the feverish illusion of the demons who bound the man. The demons know it's Jesus, Son of the Most High God, but they still hold out hope that they can have power over Him as we just saw. And they beg Jesus not to torment them, and the demons, under this feverish illusion, ask to go into the herd of pigs. Think about that. Pigs. Pigs were unclean animals. And so Jesus grants this request. Okay, you want to go into pigs? All right, well, there's no better place for you. Go. And of course, they go into the pigs, and then the pigs drown. So what are the feverish illusions to which modern man is bound? Well, the modern man is bound to all sorts of sins. Perhaps you could boil it down to these two. Modern man is bound to narcissism and nihilism. Modern man is bound to narcissism and nihilism. Modern man is under the illusion that narcissism, which is basically just living only for yourself, and nihilism, which is basically there is no meaning, make for the right way to live. And so if progress is unhitching the self from God, then narcissism is discovering truth not in God, but within ourselves. Nihilism is the idea that we come from nowhere and we go nowhere. In other words, life is filled with meaninglessness. And modern people are bound to the feverish illusion of both. Modern man is bound to narcissism and nihilism. And so this is a story about who has authority To what are you bound and for what do you beg? See, this is a story filled with begging. There's three instances of begging in this story. First, the demons beg not to be sent from the country in verse 10. Jesus grants the request. Jesus sends the demons into a herd of pigs and thereby destroys the entire herd. The herdsmen flee to the city and tell the townspeople what happened. And the people then come, now the second instance of begging, the people now come and beg Jesus to depart from the country in verse 17. Jesus granted the request, which then leads to the third instance of begging. The healed man then begs Jesus to go with Jesus in verse 18. Jesus does not grant the request. 
And so the pigs beg to go into swine. The people beg Jesus to leave. And the healed man begs to go with Jesus. It's a story about begging. And in the case of the crowd who comes on the scene and then begs Jesus to depart in verse 17, in the case of the crowd, it seems like the crowd cares more for their pigs than the fellow human being. Jonathan Edwards makes this point in his sermon on this passage that that the, the crowd preferred pigs to the person. The crowd preferred swine to the Savior. And it might be hard for us to see in this passage because when we think pigs, you know, we think disgusting animals. But when the pigs drowned themselves, they they wiped out a significant portion of the city's wealth. So the man is healed, but the town's investments are eliminated. And so would you be happy if the cost of God healing the crazy dude living in the town cemetery was your 401k and all your investments? So, So a man is healed, but your entire investment portfolio drowns in the lake. That's the issue the town is dealing with here. Jesus destroyed the economic well-being. And so in verse 17, they beg Jesus to leave. And in so doing, notice that they miss the greater thing because they care so much about the lesser thing. They miss the greater thing, which is the healing of this demon-possessed man, possessed by legion, because they prefer the lesser thing, their investment. This problem is prevalent in our day. We prefer greater things for lesser things. We ignore greater things for lesser things. I imagine if you think about it, the examples are many in your life. Parents ignore their kids, the greater thing, for their phone, the lesser thing. Citizens complain about their elected leaders, the lesser thing, but can't find the time to pray for their elected leaders, the greater thing. Political conspiracy theorists believe lies, the lesser thing, rather than the truth, the greater thing. We are happy with worldly enjoyments, the lesser thing, neglecting the Christian hope of eternal life, the greater thing. We live in the shack of sin instead of the mansion of Christ's righteousness. We daily prefer the lesser thing rather than the greater thing. We are prone to not just ignore greater things for lesser things, but to, just like the crowd in verse 17, but to beg for the lesser thing rather than the greater thing. So it's not a matter of preference even, it's a matter of begging. We beg for the lesser thing to the neglect of the greater thing. We do this. Hopefully the examples in your own life are multiplying right now. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? We know this isn't right. Why do we do this? Why does this happen? Why do we confuse the lesser thing for the greater thing? Well, it's because whatever it is, we imagine some excellency in the lesser thing. We imagine it. It's not real, but we imagine it. And when we imagine some excellency in the lesser thing, we've lost our sense of what is excellent and what is not. And so we go about day by day mistaking fast food for prime rib. And this passage is largely shaped by begging. Three times we see begging from three different parties. 
begging. I mean, this is a word that's very uncommon in the New Testament. I mean, this is perhaps the central focus of the passage. But the point of all of this is not that begging is wrong. Begging is not wrong. The question is, for what are you begging? For what are you begging? And then what if all of us, what if all of us right now, just starting with our local church, what if all of us today together began begging God for the greater thing? What would be the result? Could it be that we're waiting for this reformation to come across our nation? And God is simply waiting for His people to finally beg for the greater thing. What would happen if we all today together began begging God for the greater things? And then if we begged God for the greater things, what would we beg for? Would we even know what to beg for? And so perhaps that can be the center of a family discussion at dinner one night this week. Family, what would it look like to beg for the greater things? What are the greater things we ought to be begging for together? And so this is a passage about who has authority, to what are you bound, and for what do you beg? In 1927, Bertrand Russell, the famous British atheist, published his famous book, Why I Am Not a Christian. It was a bestseller. And in that book, Bertrand Russell tells us that it is this story. It is this story. It is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 that offended him the most. He said this story, above all the rest, this story is unbelievable. It's beyond the pale. That Jesus finds a crazy man in a graveyard, possessed by thousands of demons who are exercised into 2,000 pigs, and the pigs run into the sea and drown. It is unbelievable. I refuse to believe this. In contrast to Bertrand Russell, I, as a Christian, find this story believable. He rejects this story because he finds it unbelievable. Christians believe this story because we find it believable. Here are two opposing ways of thinking about the world. His view is a narrow perception based solely on what is natural. The Christian view is a perception that understands that the natural is framed by the supernatural. His view takes in no more than what the senses observe. The Christian view sorts the accumulation of sensory observation based on the reality of the transcendent. His view goes no further than intuition. The Christian view pierces through the object to get at the truth. Bertrand Russell reads this story and thinks it is unbelievable. The Christian reads this story and says, this is exactly what Jesus does with sinners. He changes them. What do sinners need? They need a change. Look at verse 15. They need a change. Verse 15 says, They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. 
See, this is what Jesus does. Jesus changes people. He changes this man from being violent, naked, and untamed to, now verse 15, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. That's what Jesus does with people. He transforms them. Jesus doesn't just forgive sins. Jesus makes people new. And Satan hates it. He hates it. But even Satan's legions cannot stop the power of Jesus. Jesus can order raging storms to stop. And he can order Satan's legions to go. And so this is a story about who has authority, to what are you bound, and for what do you beg? On the question of who has authority, will you abandon the lie that joy comes when you are sovereign? Will you accept that true freedom is to be joyfully constrained by God's authority? On the question of to what are you bound, Will you recognize that to be bound to narcissism, nihilism, self-absorption, and whatever, whatever other sin may have you, is to live in the same agony as the man who was bound to the hundred eyes and thousand tongues of demons? On the question of for what do you beg? Will you beg to go with Jesus, like the healed man in verse 18, or will you beg Jesus to go? like the crowds in verse 17. There are a lot of young people in the church today who are biding their time longing for the day when they can leave home and be done with all this Jesus stuff. They want to be in an entirely different region than Jesus, just like the townspeople in verse 17. And so if you are one of those, and if you are saying to Jesus, I can't wait for you to go to another region, then before you commit to that, I encourage you to reflect on verse 20 as we close. Look at it with me. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So this wretched man who lived in a graveyard, who was bound and so he couldn't be bound, this man is the first missionary to Gentiles. You see, when a person is redeemed from his condition, from his sinful condition, even when he's bound by thousands of demons, when a person is redeemed from their sinful condition by Jesus' powerful word, he is restored to wholeness. This man goes from a savage life in a graveyard to an evangelist for Christ. This is what Christianity is about. That is complete restoration. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, the universe and all its creatures are yours. It is because you have all power that we beg you that we would not seek life among dead things as did the wretched man who lived in the graveyard, but that you would restore us so that we may find our heaven in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.